Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hey everyone, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino. Now, I think I've mentioned it on this show before, but this year is the 20th anniversary of FIRE's founding. Yes, 2-0. I've been with FIRE for a combined almost eight years at this point. I started as an intern here back in 2010 and then returned in, what, 2012 after college as a full-time staffer. When I first started, we were a much smaller shop, maybe 14 to 15 full-time employees, and now we have almost that many people just in the communications department alone. And we've had to move into bigger offices in recent years at our headquarters in Philadelphia. And then just last year, we moved into new offices at our DC outpost, which is where I spend most of my days. Suffice to say, we've grown a lot since we were first founded in 1999. There are reasons for that, of course. For one, our issues have become much more high profile, especially since 2013, when campus disinvitations started to become a phenomenon. And then that, of course, only escalated with some of the violence we began seeing on campus in 2017, and then some of the broader, more student-led drives for censorship, think calls for microaggression, policing, trigger warnings, and bias response teams. I don't recall much discussion of those topics at all when I was in college about a decade ago. But I think we've also grown because we've become so effective. The number of red light speech codes are way down since we first started tracking and attacking them back in 2007. We've won a number of huge legislative victories too, including creating statutory barriers in many states to implementing so-called free speech zones. I like to call them censorship zones. And we've also won big victories in the court of law and the court of public opinion. I like to say that if our Stand Up for Speech litigation project were a batter in the MLB, it would be tested daily for the use of performance-enhancing drugs. Now, again, anniversaries are a time for reflection, and we've been doing a lot of that here at FIRE lately. So as we gear up to celebrate our 20th anniversary later this month on October 24th in New York City, I thought it would be a nice time to interview FIRE co-founder and board of directors member Harvey Silverglade. He, of course founded FIRE with his Princeton classmate and former University of Pennsylvania professor Alan Charles Coors in 1999. That was after they co-authored a book together called The Shadow University, The Betrayal of Liberty on America's Campuses. Harvey is a criminal defense lawyer by trade, and he and I got together recently and spoke at his offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts about many topics, including what got him interested in what became FIRE's core issues of free speech and due process. We also talked about the writing of the Shadow University, the founding of FIRE. We talked about what he makes of his creation turning 20 and what he sees for its our future. But before we begin, I should note, if you can be in New York City on the 24th to help us celebrate our 20th anniversary, you should be in New York City on the 24th to help us celebrate our 20th anniversary. Famed author and free speech champion Salman Rushdie will be delivering the keynote address. Journalist Jonathan Rausch will also be there. You may remember him from one of our early episodes on the topic of defending your enemies. You also have the opportunity, if you attend, to hear from many of the students and faculty members we have helped throughout our many years of existence. You can buy your ticket or sponsorship today for that event by visiting thefire.org slash anniversary. Again, that's thefire.org slash anniversary. Now, on to Harvey Silverglade. Harvey, before we get into 
how FIRE was first founded. I want to know what got you interested in the issues of free speech, academic freedom, due process, individual rights, broadly speaking. Well, first of all, I have represented students from the very early days of my law practice. I represented the students who, were, uh, who, who rioted at Harvard, um, the free speech movement, various campuses. I was always a free speech nut. And um, I very early in my career, I was representing students. What was, when you, when you say you were a free speech nut, was there something that animated that? Was there, did that come from anywhere? Or was it just kind of part of who you were? You know, I've been asked that before, and the best that I can answer is, is this. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, and there was a certain culture in Brooklyn. And the culture went, it can be summarized by the following, which we kids memorized and used all the time. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never harm me. That is to say, don't hit me, but you can call me anything you want, and I'm, I'm okay with it. I can take it, but don't hit me. I'm not a great boxer, but I'm a pretty good talker. And you call me a name, I'll call you a name, and then afterwards, we'll be friends. We'll sort out our problems. We won't go to yeah. some authority figure to figure them out. We, don't, we do not need codes. We do not need authority figures. And we got along quite well. Um, we, the, the neighborhood I lived in in Brooklyn was my building. The apartment building I lived in was all Jewish. Right next door, it was all Italian. And we actually got along. We called each other names, of course, but we got along. And that's when I, I, I imbibed the, the notion that speech is useful, but it's not really dangerous. And letting people say what's on their minds is one of the ways of preventing them from being violent. They can say what's on their mind. What a wonderful, what a wonderful method, what a wonderful device for preventing violence. So I, I, I had an appreciation and a respect for free speech. So you ended up going to Princeton, correct? I did. And that's where you met Alan Charles Coors, who co-founded FIRE with you. That's correct. When you were at Princeton, did you have any of these issues uh, on campus with being able to speak out? I, I know that was before the free speech movement, and there was a lot of in loco parentis, I'm assuming, on campus. But did you have this instinct to kind of rebel against authority? Well, I was a fish out of water at Princeton. Here I was, a Brooklyn boy, and I ended up in Princeton. How did that happen? Believe it or not, it was the only place I could afford because Princeton had a fellow named Kane, C-A-I-N-E. He was made a fortune in racehorses, and he left Princeton his fortune, provided that, and they, he said that which would be used for scholarships, but before they could generally give scholarships to whoever they want or use the funds for something other than scholarships, they had to give scholarships to people, kids who were graduating from five high schools that he named. And my high school, but then I lived in New Jersey, Jersey suburbs, Pagoda High School, uh, not a great high school. Um, and, but 
Bogota had one student who went to Princeton every year. And the guidance counselor was the one who really selected and said, she came up to me and she said, you know, apply to Princeton because I think you're a good candidate for the Kane Scholarship. I applied, I got a full scholarship, um, I, which fortunately, because I had no money, and um, I got to Princeton on a scholarship. But nonetheless, I was a bit of a fish out of water. You can imagine a Brooklyn boy at Princeton those days. Princeton was still more than 50% private school students who came from south of the Mason-Dixon line. This was not Brooklyn Polytech, believe me. This was not anything that I was accustomed to. Uh, I met Alan Charles Coors. We were a little bit out of the same. He was from Jersey City. Um, we got through it. And then we came to Cambridge. Uh, I was at the law school and he was at the Harvard Graduate School. So it, we, we had a long history together um, before we started FIRE. We started FIRE because we were getting requests by students on campus who were being penalized for things they said. They were upset being penalized for things they said because they thought that if you can't say it on a college campus, where can you say it? The notion that there was more free speech out here in the real world than on the college campus astonished these students, astonished me. I think Coors was more accustomed. He, being a faculty member, he saw this before I did. But um, we, we decided that all these students who were coming to us for help, me as a lawyer and Coors as a professor, that they really needed more organized help and more time and resources than we could expend. Coors had a full-time teaching schedule. I had a litigation schedule. I represented people in trouble, mostly criminal law and some First Amendment stuff. And um, we just couldn't do it anymore. And so we decided that we were going to start an organization that was going to help carry the load of students who had free speech problems on campus and due process disciplinary problems on campus. But before that, you two wrote the book, The Shadow University. Yes. And what was the inspiration for writing that book? Was it also students coming to you, faculty yes. members coming to you? Students and faculty members coming to us. And as a result of the fact that they were coming to us, we had knowledge of these problems all over the country, on campuses all over the country, private and public colleges, you, um, the, 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 from, from the you know, top to the bottom, from the, the, the most elite organization, the, the most elite colleges, to the ordinary state colleges, um, community colleges. It was happening everywhere. And we had the picture, the big picture of this. So we decided what we were going to do was we were going to write a book about it as a way of helping people and as a way of calling attention to the problem. So we got together 
mostly here in this house, we wrote The Shadow University. Um, the Shadow University got published, and what happened was it massively increased the number of people coming to us for help. We figured this book is a self-help book, but it didn't work out that way. It simply said, oh, here are two guys who understand this problem. They know how to defend against these silly prosecutions for free speech. And, um, and so um, it didn't help us. We were flooded with cases. And that's when we decided we had to start fire. What was the response from universities to the Shadow University? Because my understanding that the book got quite a bit of publicity. In 1990s, that was the height of the political correctness movement, so yes. to speak. The thing about the book that got attention was we named names. We actually named names, not only the colleges, but the deans, the presidents, the ones who were the real cowards and the ones who were the kind of tin pot Napoleons who were terrorizing students and faculty members who were exercising free speech. And the naming of the names turned out to be a brilliant strategy because these people were embarrassed. And so Coors and I figured we need an organization that will publicize these cases. You know, fire, the main the main weapon that fire has, and it's had it since day one, is it names the names of these people and shames them. We have fabulous press, always had, fabulous press relationships, and we can get their names in the paper. And a dean or a president um, or a faculty member who is trying to shut students up and punish students for saying things or deans who are trying to shut up professors and punish them. They end up with their names in newspapers, including their hometown papers. We, we developed the art of not only getting their names in the national press, but equally harmful to them and painful to them in their local community newspapers. And this really aggravated them. So we, we found that Aggravation was a wonderful form of torture that it really, it, it, it really caused these bureaucrats, these tidpot Napoleons, to stop and think before taking out their, their power obsession uh, on, on students. What were some of the challenges in first getting fire up and running in 1999? Well, 20 years ago. I had a full-time job as a lawyer. Coors had a full-time job as a college professor. And here we had this organization, and Coors and I ran it at the beginning. We eventually got enough money. We were able to have an executive director. But for years, fire ran on a shoestring. And we eventually were able to get a fundraising apparatus. We got nonprofit organizations that looked at what we were doing and liked it. Because um, remember, we represented students and faculty members who were liberals, who were conservatives, who were libertarians, who were communists, who were socialists. Uh, and um, it was pretty obvious that this was a really, a truly nonpartisan effort to get free speech and due process rights 
for everybody across the board. Remember, Coors was a conservative and I was a liberal. And so from the beginning, fire was nonpartisan. It had to be because the co-founders were at different ends of the political spectrum who nonetheless were friends and cohorts. What were some of the most memorable cases from those early years, either cases that came up around the writing of Shadow, the, the Shadow University or in the early years of fire? Well, there was, of course, the infamous water buffalo case at Penn. This is the paradigmatic case of not only the suppression of punishment, free speech, but also punishment without due process. Uh, and also, it was the greatest example. It was a gift that fell from the heavens like manna <laughs> into our laps because the administrators were total morons, including the president of the university. They were total morons. Imagine they imagined that the student, Edin Jacobowitz, who was leaning out his dorm window trying to study, and there were the sorority girls down below who were whooping it up and making all this noise and he couldn't study. And he said, shut up, you water buffalo. Immediately, the administration in its politically correct mania assumed that he was calling them water buffalo because water buffalo was a, a black animal from Africa. Well, first of all, just to show you how stupid these people are, water buffalo are not from Africa, they're from India. And um, Aidan Jacobowitz, English was not his first language, Hebrew was, and he roughly translated water buffalo into English from the Yiddish word behema. Behema, and I know what behema means because my Yiddish-speaking grandmother used to call me a behema, is a very loud kind of um, um, a loud, uh, it, was, it was slang for a kid who was loud and boisterous. Unruly. And, and unruly. Um, so uh, it all grew out of a, a ignorance and misunderstanding. But Eden was disciplined for calling these girls a racist term. And Eden went to Coors. And Coors decided he was going to defend Eden. Coors called me because I was a lawyer with experience in the First Amendment and due process area. And I joined up with Alan um, to help advise Alan in representing Jacobowitz. Nobody in the world thought that we had a chance in hell of winning the case, but of course we did. Why? Because we had great press contacts. And the, the administration was so embarrassed that they finally had to admit the obvious that this was not a racial epithet. People are still talking about that case. I was looking on Twitter over the weekend and someone had referenced the case. I don't know if this particular part of the story is true, but they said that the administration had tried to s schedule Jacobowitz's hearing during one of Coors's finals. And Coors decided he was going to cancel his final, final in order to be there to represent. And that just struck me as... It struck me that it struck Coors as this be, it being this important that we need to cancel a final. Well, it, it's absolutely true, but Coors was a brilliant strategist, mind you. This was also part of the strategy that kids were going to have to go without their education, without their, without their class, because the administration was so obdurate and stupid that they were going after another student for speaking freely. And 
under a misunderstanding even as to what he was saying. Mind you, our position is, even if he was using a racial epithet, it would be protected. But it didn't even get that far. You know, they didn't understand Yiddish. So that was, a, it's a great story. The early cases at fire, what type of cases were they? Were they cases dealing with overbroad speech codes, harassment policies, for instance? I know 2001, it's only two years after fire was founded, three years after fire was founded. 9-11, um, I imagine there were some, some cases surrounding that. What were the early types of cases like, or did they run the gamut? They ran the gamut. What, what we discovered, although I think we knew it before we even started fire, was that administrators can latch on to any excuse for shutting people up, either because they don't like to hear what the people are saying, or they don't want to have a campus turmoil. They want everybody should say nice things to each other, and students then because if students started to call each other names and students start to challenge each other's. Um, political ideologies and ways of life that eventually, this is the imagination of the administrative match, soon they'll start killing each other. You know, they, they jumped, the administrators jumped from speech that was hostile and loud to violence. They couldn't understand these were two very different things. And the real insight they didn't have was that by allowing students to shoot off their mouths, get, you know, release their steam by calling each other names, you reduce the chances for violence because they got it out of their systems. They were able to call someone a name rather than punch them in the nose. Speech actually is conducive to anti-violence, something that the college administrators still don't understand. We talk about speech a lot at FIRE, with good reason, of course, but FIRE and its mission isn't tasked with just defending free speech rights. There's also religious liberty if we look at our guides to student rights on campus. Uh, we are involved in orientation programs to the extent they venture off into thought reform. Due process rights, of course. Why were those other rights incorporated into the founding mission of FIRE? Because liberty, because freedom can't be segmented into convenient capsules. Freedom covers a wide gamut of human relationships and interrelationships. And you really can't have one without the other. You can't have free speech without freedom of religion. For one thing, a lot of people's free speech writers exercise in the name of religion. Um, and due process is essential because you can't have free speech rights if you allow kangaroo courts for people who exercise those rights. The beauty of the Bill of Rights is how much of the Bill of Rights is woven together in a magnificent grand tapestry that we call freedom, or we call liberty. And you can't break it up, you can't break it down into, into constituent parts. And if you're in favor of one aspect of liberty, you're in favor of them all. If you're in favor of free speech, as Nat Hentoff would say, for me, you have to also uh, uh, give free speech to thee. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a whole state of mind. It's a whole political 
um, um, tapestry, and uh, we were in favor of the the full the full Monty, so to speak. When a lot of people think about fire, they think of it as a legal organization, perhaps because these rights are codified in the Bill of Rights. But early on in fire's history, didn't litigate any cases. That's, That's a relatively cr- recent That's phenomenon. We, we left the litigation to the ACLU, which back in those days was a very powerful free speech organization. It's much less so now, I say sadly. But um, we left the litigation to the ACLU we used tactics of pressure and um, of just exposing them. A dean could be a tin pot Napoleon privately, but when he suddenly got on the page, front page of newspaper, whether it was the campus newspaper or the town paper or the national press or his hometown newspaper, he was embarrassed. And we used embarrassment to tremendous effectiveness. Those early letters, Fire has always written letters to universities yes. when it uncovers a problem. And those letters were almost always public, too. And the, the responses were public. Yes. Those letters featured very little, if I'm recalling correctly, legal precedent. It was most always moral. Correct. Academic freedom. Mm-hmm. We used academic freedom more often and more effectively than we used the First Amendment. Were, were universities responsive in those early years to the argument? Fire at this point, just a couple of years old, not many staff members, not a big uh, budget or endowment to speak of. Let me tell you something. What characterized fire back then and characterized, characterizes fire today is stubbornness. Stubbornness. We never gave up. If we wrote a letter to the college, president or the dean, and we didn't get a response, we sent a follow-up letter saying, dear president so-and-so, dear, you, must have, you must be very busy. You've overlooked our letter of January 8th. Or in closing another copy of it, we anticipate hearing from you. And if we didn't hear from him, we would write to the board of trustees. We would say, you know, you have a real problem on your campus. Not only has the administration violated the free speech or due process rights of uh, this student or this faculty member, but they don't even answer their correspondence. We've written, so we're now sending this to you and we're asking for your response. Well, the first thing that would happen was the chairman of the board would call up the dean and say, what the hell is this all about? Why is, why is this landed on our laps? You're supposed to the kid. And we would get a response. And why would we get a response? We never gave up. Stubborn. They knew that we were going to hound them. We were going to plague them. We were going to send this, send news releases to their hometown newspaper. We were going to continue to be gigantic pains in the neck forever. And they didn't want this forever. So as a staffer at Fire, I'm sometimes asked the question, did the acronym become before the full name? Or did Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education come first? And it just so happened to have an acronym FIRE. Well, when we Because it's, it's a great acronym. We, when we named FIRE, it was helpful that, that there was this, that the acronym FIRE, and we were able to have our symbol as a torch. That got the... <laughs> 
that got the campuses very nervous, you know, the administrators very nervous. But, um, but fire was a very convenient name. However, it was very important that we had in the title individual rights because we were interested in the rights of the individual, not the rights of the institution. We were interested in the rights of the individual. There were plenty of people who fought for rights of institutions, academic freedom. Professors have an enormous amount of rights. Institutions, they have tax exemption. Mm -hmm. But we were interested in the individual student. And so the I, individual rights, the IR was very important in the, in, the, in the name of the organization. When you first founded FIRE, Laura tells us that you didn't think it'd be around for very long. Why is that? Well, this is, I suppose I should be embarrassed at this. I told Alan Coors and I told our board and um, everybody who would ask that I was anticipating that this organ, I didn't consider myself an organization man, um, but I thought surely this problem is so absurd. The fact that you can't say something on a college campus, this is the place where you should be able to say everything. That there was more freedom of speech, as I would put it, outside of the college gate than inside. It was absurd. This is such an absurd problem. The speech codes were so inappropriate in campus. Surely that if we bring attention, call attention to what's going on on the campus, that this problem would disappear in 10 years. It couldn't possibly last more than 10 years because of the absurdity of it. And as soon as the world sees what these campuses are like and the idiocy of these administrators, Surely the problem will go away and free speech and due process will be restored to the campuses. So I assumed fire was going to be around only for 10 years. I was in shock when 10 years came around and the problem had actually grown worse. I was in shock at the 15th year. And here I am facing the 20th unbelievable that 20 years after we started to call attention to this dysfunctionality of the campuses with regard to free speech and academic freedom and due process, the need for fire is, is worse than ever, stronger than ever. That is not a happy, I mean, I'm happy that fire is doing this job. I'm happy that we have the resources. I'm happy that we have the staff. But I'm very unhappy that we're still around. We shouldn't be. This is an organization that should have gone out of business 10 years ago. In some ways, though, FIRE has won. The battles has, has made a lot of progress, I should say, in some of the battles that were set out for it early on. With regard to speech codes, when we first started tracking those in, what, 2007, 80% of colleges had red light speech codes. Now we're below 30%, I believe, 28% as the last report. Uh, the federal government has gotten better. In 2011, of course, they had the Dear Colleague letter, and just a couple months from now, we're gonna get revised regulations that should hopefully institute greater due process protections for student in the Title IX context. Uh, 
administrators in certain regards and at certain schools have gotten a little bit better. We're starting to see orientation programs at schools that educate students about free speech and academic freedom. I'm thinking about the University of Chicago, Purdue, even Princeton. One of its uh, first reads that it gives its students over the course of summer was Keith Whittington's book uh, about free speech on campus, which is very solid on these issues. But at the same time, you're seeing new challenges. You're seeing rising intolerance among certain students on campus, the calls for disinvitations of speakers, uh, calls for microaggression policing, uh, and uh, bias response teams are a new sort of um, institution built on campus to pol police speech, literally in some cases with actual police. So as old problems go away or are ameliorated, so to speak, new problems come up. Does this do you think we're in a worse position now than we were 20 years ago? Or do you think it's just a different challenge? We're not in a worse position, but it is a different but related challenge. The fact is that there are so many college administrators now. You know, there are more college administrators than there are faculty members. Yeah, I think that inflection point was something like 2008. Yes. And um, they are not, the administrators, the bureaucrats, are not about to give up the need for their services. They're not, they're not about to go to the, on the unemployment line. And so they invent new needs for themselves. They manage to establish new rules, new procedures, new orientation, the need for orientation. Not, how many administrators are busy just dealing with orientation? So that gives them employment. It gives them power. It gives them a sense that they're needed. So the problem changes. The problem that FIRE originally jumped in to solve, we've had tremendous success. But you know, up the, the bubble, the, 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 the balloon, it balloons somewhere else. And so um, we, haven't, we haven't yet conquered the endless thirst of administrators for power and for running other people's lives. The students, now, I haven't been at this nearly as long as you have, but I started in 2010 as an intern at FIRE and then of course became a full-time staffer in 2012. But the years between 2015 and 2017 uh, perhaps kicked off with the protests at the University of Missouri and then uh, the famous protests against Nicholas and Erica Christakis at Yale kicked off, it seemed like, a period of intense focus on these issues. I would be approached by people who had no interest in these issues asking me about them, no previous interest in these issues asking me about them. And then you started, of course, to see the violence on campus, uh, the attacks uh, when Charles Murray went to Middlebury or the attacks, uh, the firebombing at Berkeley. Uh, was that something that had ever been seen on campus in the last 50 years, or was that a well, new phenomenon? There were there were some, there was some violence during the anti- 70s, yeah. And, and then the anti-draft, anti-Vietnam War era. Um, there was a, when I was a young lawyer, it was my first year of law practice, there was the, um, the, the uh, situation at Harvard where the president called in the police and the National Guard to violently oust the students who took over um, University Hall at, at Harvard. 
Uh, for, was, that, was that a protest of the draft of yeah, the war? Yeah, protesting the Vietnam but, War. But that seems US. fundamentally different, protesting a war, than protesting speech or a speaker that appearing on campus, right? Yeah, but what I was suggesting is that the students protesting against the war was very unpopular with the administrators mm. of colleges. Um, they didn't like to have the campuses frozen, tied up, with protesters protesting a war. The Vietnam War was posed a real problem for college administrators. And they thought that they had to exercise some real strength and real power, including the use of police power, throw students out of school. So there was a lot of turbulence over the Vietnam War. And um, I was, as a lawyer, I was involved in representing students who, who were billy-clubbed, uh, who were expelled, for, um, for, for symbolic speech or actual speech. So I got into it. It was a period that called for lawyers' involvement in protecting students' rights, and to some extent, faculty members' rights. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so I was in it from the beginning. Yeah. Now, FIRE is a lot bigger than it was when you first founded it, of course. We have almost 50 staff members now. Was In your wildest dreams, did you ever anticipate that FIRE would become a 50-person 50 staff, 50 staff with offices in Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia? Of course not. Coors and I handled everything ourselves in the beginning, and ultimately we got a, a, a lawyer and an executive director, and it's, the organization grew like topsy. And it, it, it I have to say, contrary to the, the reason other colleges and universities administrative staffs have grown, is not because the bureaucrats in FIRE want to make more um, work for themselves. It's because the need, there was this genuine need, and the small staff couldn't handle it. And the burgeoning, the burgeoning violations of students' rights and faculty members' rights both due process and free speech were such that we constantly had to add staff. We had to constantly fundraise. Fundraising became crucial because without the funds, the organization just couldn't handle the, the, the volume of violations and the, the, the core of the problem. Looking forward, what do you hope to see? And what do you expect to see? Two separate questions. I hope to see the same thing that I expect to see. We are going to win. And the reason we are going to win is the absurdity of the position taken by our opponents. The notion that on a college campus, people have the power and the right and the prerogative to say to somebody else, shut up is so absurd that ultimately we will prevail. But I no longer make predictions as to win. I do hope that if I'm not around when that day comes, when victory comes, that fire has the good sense to go out of business. If the problem dis dissipates, then we should go out of business. You know, one thing that always occurs whenever I talk about this issue of fire going out of business. I remember when I was a kid, there was the March of Dimes. 
It was a charity that raised money to cure polio and to help treat polio. They paid for iron lungs, they, and they, they paid for research, medical research. Well, lo and behold, polio got conquered. A vaccine was invented that prevented polio. Polio, in, at least in this country and in most parts of the world now, polio is gone. So here you have this organization that was built up to raise money in order to cure polio, and Dr. Salk comes along and invents a vaccine that prevents it. And the organization is now faced with an existential threat. It's got nothing left to do, so it's going to have to go out of business. Oh, no. There was a bureaucracy. There was a fundraising apparatus. And they decided that they were going to go into other diseases. And I always thought to myself, if they had any integrity, they would have done exactly, they did their job. They did a fabulous job of funding research to cure this plague of an illness that paralyzed countless numbers of little kids. Just pitiful seeing these kids in iron lungs. Your heart went out. But they, mission accomplished. Have the good sense and the grace to go out of business instead of retuning the bureaucracy. And my hope is that fire does not follow this foundation um, as, a, as a model. That when we accomplish our mission, we dissolve mission accomplished and we all can go back to doing other things. You've accomplished a lot in your career. Where does the founding, the co-founding of FIRE stack up there? I think it is the thing for which I'm most proud because it affects the most people and it helps keep healthy institutions, higher education, that I feel are incredibly important for a well-functioning democratic and free society. Without independent universities, freedom is in real trouble. The country is in real trouble. Education is crucial, and part of education requires f academic freedom. Without academic freedom, it's not, a, it's not education, it's indoctrination. So I consider that to be central, and I consider my contribution to an organization to protect that incredibly important asset um, to be the thing I'm most proud of. I've, I've won a lot of cases, criminal cases, uh, in my career. When you win a criminal case, you get one person out of a real jam, but that's about it. Oh yeah, their children appreciate it, and their relatives and their, their mothers and fathers appreciate it. But it's a pretty small group. Sometimes you get a case in the appellate court or the Supreme Court where you can make a bigger difference in the law, but it's on some small little area. Um, but fire was an accomplishment which I'm most proud. Um, my, it's, it's the subject of my first book, co-authored with Alan Charles Coors. Um, and, 
And um, my subsequent books have been about criminal law. But it's the thing I'm most proud of, I would say. Um, and um, so this organization really does my heart a lot of good. On the one hand, I'm sorry to see it still in existence. On the other hand, I'm most proud of it. This is a, imagine I live with these imposed views bouncing around <laughs> in my brain. <laughs> well, I think we're gonna have to leave our listeners with that too. Harvey, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. That was FIRE co-founder, board of directors member, criminal defense attorney, and personal hero of mine, Harvey Silverglade. You can learn more about Harvey's work by visiting harveysilverglade.com. You can also check out one of his two books, the most recent of which is Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent, and then, of course, the aforementioned Shadow University, which he co-authored with FIRE co-founder Alan Charles Kors. We also made a short documentary about Harvey's life a few years ago that is available on our YouTube channel and which I'll link in the show notes. And don't forget about our 20th anniversary gala later this month on October 24th with famed author Salman Rushdie. Tickets and sponsorships, again, are available at thefire.org slash anniversary. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can send us feedback by emailing so to speak at thefire.org. And you can also leave feedback by leaving a review on one of the podcast platforms on which you listen to this podcast. Uh, those include Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Reviews, as I mentioned on every show, help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thank you again for listening. Listening.